please turn with me now in your Bibles once again to Psalm number 90. Psalm number 90 as we're looking at this psalm in our preaching of God's holy word, Psalm 90. And we're going to be looking at Psalm 90 under the title, Our Unchanging God. Our Unchanging God. As many of us know, change can be very unsettling for many of us. Especially the older we get, I think sometimes when we're younger, change can sometimes be exciting and something to maybe even look forward to. But changes are often unsettling. In the modern era and modern times, there seems to be constant change, doesn't there? In the world around us, constant new information, new technology, all these kind of things, which can make it very difficult can't it, for older generations. Changing cultures, changing values, changing fashions and styles that seem to come in and out almost at every year. All of, a, all of this can leave us strongly hungering for something that is unchanging and that is a foundation which cannot be taken away. What is the, the solid foundation for all we see around us and I should say even this it should leave us with a hunger for something that is not like this world everything in this world wears out it returns to dust and we should not look to it we should look to that which is without beginning and without end now some change may seem very exciting that's why we go on holidays, isn't it? We like to see different things and go visit different places. But none of us really want constant change, do we? Every single day, constantly changing, every single time. Maybe if you changed around, I don't know, your sleeping patterns. That would really be unsettling, wouldn't it? But never-ending change, what would that be? Well, chaos. And we would hunger for that which is more structured. The danger is, and we can do this a lot in modern societies, we're always searching for the new. Always searching for the exciting new thing. And the old is, quote unquote, boring. And not so exciting. What can happen when we're thinking like this is, we can go towards a God who's just like us. That's not a good thing, by the way. A God who changes. A God shaped in our image rather than a God who is wholly different from us. A God who is unchanging and unchangeable. Friends, I will say this. If it's a God who is like us and is prone to change and be moved by us mere creatures, he's not worthy of our worship at all. A God who is given to change is a God who cannot help you. He cannot rescue your soul. And he's not worthy of our worship. But in a time of constant state of change and the passing of time. The wonderful thing for us as believers in Jesus Christ. As we trust in Jesus Christ. We have access to the unchanging God. We know the one who is unchanging and unchangeable. Outside of history he's unchangeable. Before history began unchangeable. And when history ends and when time ends and when the new heavens and the new earth come in, he will not, cannot change. 
And the question is for you this evening, do you know this God? Do you know this God? Not a God of your own imagination. The true God. The God who's made everything we see around us. The wonderful clouds in the sky, the mountains, the seas, everything wonderful we see around us and maintains all these things. A God who is not subject to change. The God who is subject to change is not real and he cannot help you. Now, if we are in times of constant change, it's unsettling times. Let us not go to an unsettled, unreal God. Now, sometimes when we're talking to people in these changing times, we feel that, don't we? It's unsettling, people are going through changes, young people don't know whether this, where they stand and so many different topics around them. You talk to a people who see these changes, they see the negative effect they have in society, what do we point them toward? And this evening I pray that we'll learn of the God who is unchanging and unchangeable and that we would point them towards Him. The one who cannot change. The true and living God. The great I Am. The one who spoke out of the burning bush and said, I am that I am. So our first point that we're going to look at under the psalm, Psalm 90, we're going to look at three headings. The first heading is this, Our Unchanging Settlement. Our unchanging settlement. Now this psalm, as it says here in our title, underneath uh, Psalm 90, it says a prayer of Moses, the man of God. This psalm we're looking at here this evening is one written by Moses. It is a prayer addressing God Almighty. Verse 1 says this, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Now, this is the time of Moses. Moses was alive. You know this because of he wrote this. And this is before they're in the promised land. This is most likely around the 400 years they spend in Egypt. As really exiles in bondage and captivity. Where was their home? Where was their place of habitation? Where was their settled home, their settlement. Now, for a time, they lived, 400 years, in Goshen. This was the land given to them by Pharaoh. You look at it earlier in the books of Moses. But it was not that forever, was it? That wasn't their forever home. That, the place you live today is not your forever home. It is a temporary home, as is our home here. It's only, you're only going to be in the home you're living in now, maybe another 20 years, maybe another 30 years, maybe another 5 minutes, maybe another 5 years. None of us know. Temporary. One day it will be no more. We will be one day leaving this fallen world, going toward a better home, a heavenly Canaan. A heavenly Jerusalem, a a paradise awaits. And it says, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place, our habitation in all generations. Or another way to say that, from generation to generation. The Geneva 1599 translation says this, Lord, thou hast been our habitation from generation to generation. Our habitation, our settlement. In God... 
We are not unsettled, are we? If we're in God. If we're in God, we have the unchanging and unchangeable one. We are settled in Him. Eternally. Now we may move. We may have things in this life taken from us. Eventually we will have things taken from us. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, Job said at the end of Job chapter 1. But if God is your God, then God is your eternal and unchanging settlement, habitation, home of rest. You work a long day at work and you're tired. You can't wait to get home. Sit on the couch. Maybe turn on the fire, the heating and relax. A place of rest. This isn't just a place of rest and refuge for this generation. It's from generation to generation. For all generations. What can be taken away from the Christian? Yeah, there's things in this world that can be taken away. Our health can be taken away. But can heaven be taken away from the Christian? Not at all. There are many Christians that will struggle to think about heaven. I think we need to think more about heaven. We need to think more heavenly minded as believers in Jesus Christ. We need to think more about where we will spend far more time than where we will spend in this world. But we struggle with it, don't we? We're, we can be so with the, the things of this world, the physical things that will one day be dust and ash. And we can often think, we go through the Bible and we think, well, let's look up a concordance. Let's look at all the Bible verses that talk about heaven. And there's some Bible verses that speak directly about heaven. And we think, okay, it says a little bit and I don't know much more about that. But I would encourage you to look at what the Bible says about God. Heaven is not just some place where you avoid hell. Heaven is the place of the blessed presence of God. The wonderful enjoyment of God. So in heaven, what do you enjoy? It's not like, oh, I'm fantastic, I'm... No, it's about God. (laughs) We're enjoying God in the fullest sense. Now in this world, we enjoy God to a limited degree because we're sinners, we're fallen. Yet we'd still enjoy him, but to the fullness we will enjoy him in heaven. So when we see this verse, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in generations all. In the world to come, he's also going to be our dwelling place. They'll never change. That is our home. That is our future. There we will tabernacle and live forever. Now, in John chapter 1, it says, The Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. And there's almost a sense of Jesus came and tabernacled, dwelt among us. God came down to His creation and showed His special presence with His people. Heaven is glorious and wonderful. Why? Because the blessed presence of God dwells there. If we think of the Holy of Holies in the temple of God. The place where you needed perfect cleanliness ceremonially. In order to enter. It was to teach what was required to come into the blessed presence of God. We taste this in this world. But we will have it in its fullness 
forever after we exit this world. We worship the one who is unchanging. Now, it describes him here, this unchanging one. That he has been our dwelling place in all generations. Verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth, the world even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. So before the mountains were brought forth, The mountains brought forth. Now we think about this for a second. Who maintains all that we see around us? God. God. Who is worthy of our trust? God. Now, where we're living at the moment in Rathbury Island, there's a wonderful view of the Mourn Mountains. Lovely. And it's hard to imagine a time when they were never there. Imagine the time before the Mourn Mountains were ever there. I don't know, do you remember a time when the Mourn Mountains were never there? Before that, what does God say? What does it say in the scriptures here? Before the mountains were brought forth or ever that was formed the earth. What is the, the reality? He is God. He is God. And the wonderful thing about mountains is, if we think of something that looks unchangeable, it's not unchangeable, but if we're going to look at something in this world that looks unchangeable, unmovable. Boys and girls, I wonder, could you go up to a mountain? I wonder if any of you are strong enough to go up to a mountain and start pushing it. Would it move? Are you, are you sure you're not strong enough? The mountains are the things in this world that we think, ah, they've been there forever. No, they haven't. And before the world was ever made, before the mountains were ever there, God was God. That's the point it's making here. Because these are things we think, oh, the mountains, they'll always, that's why they look so majestic and so wonderful. They look so powerful, unmovable. But the fact it is, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth, before there was a sky, before there was a cloud, before there was the sun, the moon, the stars, God was God. There's no beginning with God. There's a beginning for the mountains. There's a beginning for the earth. There's a beginning for the sun and the moon and the stars. There's a beginning for this world. Why? Because we see change all around us. The world is given to change, and because this world is given to change, we, knew, we know it has a beginning. Our God is not given to change. Everything we see around us is made by the one not given to change. Do you see why this is important? Do you see why this is so vital? The one who is given to change is without, he has a beginning. The one who is without change and cannot change, he is the one who formed everything we see around us. That's why it's important. Before the world was, there was this unchanging God. I think it's important that we see as well, he doesn't in some way become the creator. He doesn't in some way become king. He doesn't in some way become judge. And you say, well, who says such things? There are a lot of modern books who say things like this. There are. God is and forever will be who he is. 
And we can't, we really can't wrap our minds around that. I don't mean that we're not smart enough. We're creatures. We are creatures speaking about the infinite God. So we're always going to struggle with this. Actually, if you think you can understand this, you've got an idol. I can guarantee that. He, the reason we're in such awe when we come before him is we can't comprehend him. We can't measure him. We can't get out the longest measuring stick in the world and say, this is the measure of his greatness. No, there is no measuring stick in the world that can measure his greatness. He is God. He is what remains unchangeable. And he is the one who wonderfully promises us a home in heaven forever and ever. John chapter 14 verses 1 to 3 says this. John chapter 14 verses 1 to 3. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself And where I am, there ye may be also. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. Lord, returning to our our psalm, thou hast been our dwelling place in generations all. And the God who is our dwelling place is this God. The unchanging God. The one who is before the mountains. The one who is before the creation. And the one who is from everlasting to everlasting. See, even our language struggles to come across with this language. Everlasting to everlasting. This is just our way of expressing. He's never ever going to change. Even the word everlasting. It's got this kind of idea of time. But our God is not confined to time at all. So our places, our settlements in this world. They will be returned to dust. Verses 3. Verse 3 in, our, in Psalm 90. Thou turnest man to destruction, sayest, return ye children of men. This is speaking now about the brevity of life, the brevity of man. Verse 6, in the morning it flourisheth, and groweth up, and in the evening it is cut down, and withereth. See, man is compared with the everlasting nature of God. See, everything we see around us, We see the brevity of life. We see the shortness of life. But our God, we have to remind ourselves, while we may see things that are short, temporary, brief, one day will disappear, we must not think that about our God. We must not compare our God to things in a fallen world. Yes, the heavens declare the glory of God and it shows his power, his handiwork. You study a painting and you see the skill of the artist in it. But at the same time, he is not limited to the creatures in this world. The reason he sustains all things is because he's not like us in that way. He's not a creature. While we struggle with change in this world, we struggle with the passing of time. We struggle with the waiting for the promises of God. We struggle for waiting for all sorts of things, don't we? It's difficult. Waiting is difficult for us. We struggle with it. Waiting for answers to prayer, even. But compared to eternity, this life is but a drop in a bucket 
Actually, a bucket of buckets. It's, no, no, that, that, that's even not big enough. It's a drop in an ocean. It's a drop in an ocean of oceans of oceans. You could take one drop of water, drop it in the Pacific Ocean, and you still would not come close to comparing the brevity of this life compared to eternity. The, the largest oceans could not even show. The depths of the, the largest, deepest oceans could not show the depth and the breadth of God. It is without... There's, imagine if you're going to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, you're wondering if you're ever going to get there. There is a bottom. But if you're trying to look at the depths of God, there is no bottom. There is no bottom at all. He is infinite. Infinite. And He is without change. It says this, the Geneva notes say this, Though man thinks this life is long, which is indeed most short, yea, Though it were a thousand years, yet in God's sight it is nothing. And as the watch that lasteth but three hours. It's referring here to verse 4, which says, For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday. You see what it's saying? Or another way to say that is, Or when he hath passed them. There's kind of an idea of a thousand years. They're nothing. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past. And as a watch in the night. A watch in the night. It kind of lasted but three hours. It's, a thousand years is like three hours to him. Etern- compared to eternity. Compared to the infinite God. These things are nothing. These things are nothing. We look at some of the promises of the Old Testament. Promising the Christ would come. And they happened some thousands of years before Jesus comes. Showing who he would be. What he would look like. What he would do. Where he would be born. Other things like that. And it thousands of years beforehand. Why? Because this, it may seem like a long time for us. But compared to eternity in the eyes of God, it is nothing. Now, think about this for a second. Who should we trust? The things that are in this world. The things that fade. The things that change. The things that are subject to change. The things that we, we, we so cling to. Whatever it is. It will one day be gone. In this world. Or will we trust the one who outlasts all those things you will cling to. Those things you love. Those things you put so much work into. And there's a certain degree of labor and hard work we must put into. We must work, to put food on the table, all these kind of things. But at the end of the day, where is the balance of our focus on the eternal, the infinite, and the unchangeable God? In verses 5 and 6 it says this, Thou carriest them away as a flood. They are as sleep in the morning. They are like grass which groweth up. Again, the psalmist Moses here is trying to get across the brevity of this life. In the morning it flourisheth, verse 6, and it groweth up. In the evening it is cut down and withereth. Except the Lord, it says in Psalm 127, verse 1. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. You see, why is that? 
because he is the one who will outlast it all. He is the one who maintains it all. Everything all around us changes. He does not. And he is our eternal home. So our unchanging settlement. Number two now, our unchanging standard. Our unchanging standard. When we die, when we leave this earth, when our spirit is separated from our body, when we die and we stand before God, there's going to be a standard that we all have to answer for. Actually, even today, even before you've left this earth, there's a standard that will never change and can never change. A righteous and unchanging standard that is from everlasting to everlasting. Here there is a standard in the world to come. And it's shown in the psalm as well. Verse 7. For we are consumed by thine anger. For by thy wrath are we troubled. You see. Why is this world so brief? Why are things subject to change and suffering and pain? Because of the displeasure of God. Because of sin in the world. This world is subject to decay. Because of the wrath of God. Now, there's in this world, if we're in Christ, the Lord has a special well-pleasing love for his people in Christ. But there's a wrath for those outside of Christ. However, so there's a kind of a chastening that we see. In this world, we, we, we suffer as well, don't we? As believers in Jesus Christ, there is suffering. But for those outside of Christ, is also suffering in this world. And all of these things are reminders of the shortness and the brevity of life. We are surrounded by death and suffering, aren't we? We're surrounded by death and suffering. People may think, why does God allow this? Friends, he's reminding us, the psalmist is reminding us, This world is consumed and burning up and changing because of the wrath of God. Because of sin. The question maybe to ask is, why did he allow us to continue at all? Why did he not end it at Adam? No, he showed his mercy. Starts off and Adam will die. But, in Christ, all shall be made alive. The sin of this world that brings wrath. You see, because our unchanging God has an unchanging, I'm trying to pick the right words here, an unchanging face towards sin. That is, his attitude towards sin is wrath forever. It didn't become wrath. His attitude toward righteousness is, it's well-pleasing before him because of who he is. Because of whom he, whom he is. It says in verse 8, Thou hast set our iniquities, that sins, before thee. Our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. And because of this standard, and because of who God is, and because of the strength and the power of glory of God, we cannot hide from God. Your pet sins, the things you would never tell your best friend, God knows about them. He knows everything about you. He knows your thoughts. He knows the very thoughts of your thoughts. He knows everything about you. There is no way 
of hiding from him. Yes, having known what you have done, having known what I've done, he, he still, with outstretched arm, calls all men, everyone, everywhere to repent. That's amazing. He knows everything about us. If our best friends knew everything that was going on in our minds all the time, they wouldn't be our best friends anymore. Isn't that true? We cannot hide our pet sins before God. God can see everything. You cannot keep secrets from God. Now, when we act like this, sometimes we think of verse 6 and we think of the standard of God. We can act differently, don't we, when nobody's looking, when no one's around. There was a thing I read years ago that in London, when they introduced streetlights, that the, the crime rate went way down. We like to hide thinking that God, with his holy and righteous standard, can't see things. He can and when, if we as Christians, and I think we do, we do plenty of times, act like this. We act like atheists. As if God cannot see us in that particular sin. This is often why we're often, we behave far better when other people are around us. We see that the eyes of people are around us. But the eyes of God are not limited in any way. They're not limited in any way. We have sinned and thought in word and deed and God knows all of it. All of it. In verse 9 it says this. For our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spent our years as a tale that is to be told. Now because of this. Because of our sin. And even the thoughts of our sins. And these, all these things that other people don't know about. Our life in this world is as it says here. We spend our years as a tale that is told. In the ESV it says this, and it's rendered different ways in different translations. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. It also has this idea of we spend our years as a meditation, or a mourning, or a sound, or a muttering, or a brief thought. Why? Our years in this world are but a brief thought because of the wrath of God. Because of the wrath of God. And we all know this. Why do people suffer? You may be here this evening and you may be going through great trials. And, and it's difficult. There's a lot of difficult things in this world. There's no doubt about this. But you probably have the question. You've, you, maybe you received a difficult diagnosis at the doctors. And you think, well, why is this happening now? I don't understand this. Everything seems to be going so well. Why now? And you get frustrated with God. Because you're, you can't see. Yet. In its fullness. All things work together for good. To them that love God. Romans 8.28 We can struggle with these things. Why, why does my father have a serious illness? Why does my child? All these difficult questions. Now. The Bible doesn't give us specific information for every single difficult thing you are going through. But there's a very general answer that I can give you this evening. Why is there suffering? Why is this, this, the years of this life as a tale that is to be told, as a sound, as a muttering, as a brief thought, because of sin? There's sin in the world. No, I am not saying 
because you did something bad in your past, therefore this bad thing is happening. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is this. There is sin in this world, so we will suffer in this world. Absolutely, without question. Because of sin. We live in a fallen world. It's a hard, hard reality. Verse 10 says this, The days of our years are threescore and ten. That's seventy years. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, that's eighty years, yet is there strength, labor, and sorrow. For it is soon cut off when we fly away. They're just so brief. If we, if we have the blessing to have eighty years in this world, they are but toil and sorrow. Why sin? The context of this before and the brevity of life is God's displeasure. Things change in this world because God is not pleased with sin. And he's unchanging in his wrath towards sin. This life is but a vapor. It's vapor. Have you ever seen a puff of smoke? It just comes out, maybe a chimney. Have you ever said, that lasts a long time? And go, it's gone. That's our life. Our life is but a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. James 4.14. Now, the older we're on this, the longer we're on this world, in this world, that we actually see that. You have children, maybe you have grandchildren, you see, well, things are going pretty fast. And they seem to go faster and faster. What do we trust in? The things, what outlasts all Or that which is subject to change. Now, let's think a bit more about this unchanging standard. This unchanging standard. What is that unchanging standard to be met? That unchanging standard will stand before God in heaven. And have to answer for that unchanging standard. That perfect, holy, and righteous standard. Now, the Bible gives us various different ways of summarizing it down. I don't know about you, but summaries are very handy, aren't they? Little short accounts of what the law of God looks like. Well, it's represented a couple of different ways. One way is the Ten Commandments. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. That's another way of summarizing the same law. On this hangs all the law and the prophets. Now... We have never loved our God as much as he ought to be loved. Not for one single second on this world. Never. We've, never, we've loved God, but in an imperfect way. If, you, if you've been born again, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you love God. But not in a way that will keep the law perfectly. Not in a way that meets that standard. So you're saying, how can us, any of us have any hope? That unchanging standard is never going to go away. When we die, when we stand before God, how do I know I'm going to spend an eternity in heaven rather than an eternity in hell? Because another kept that standard in your place. You see, what the law really should do is crush every single possibility that you would ever lean upon it for any comfort at all. Because you can't keep it. You cannot keep it. Yeah, we follow it imperfectly. But you can't keep it. The Ten Commandments, it's a guide for our life, but we can't keep it. God, the Lord Jesus Christ, kept it perfectly. So, when you stand before God and He says to you, Well done, 
Thou good and faithful servant, it will have nothing to do with your performance. With your best day in this world, with your worst day in this world, it will have to do with Jesus. And his perfect keeping of that unchanging and unchangeable standard. That standard will never, ever go away. Our final point, now at number three, our unchanging solution. Our unchanging solution. So we've looked at the, sta- the settlement, that's heaven, that's our home, is it God? Our standard, that is God's righteousness, or basically God is that standard. And the solution again to all of these is God. What is the solution? Because we've got to make sure, and this is the danger sometimes, that we present God to people as if he's a means to an end. That we present God to him as if, well, you don't want to go to hell, do you? That would be, that would be nice. No, we're presenting God to people so that they will see him as wonderful and will glorify him for all eternity. It's not just about escaping hell. It's about the glory of God. The unchanging solution for our difficulty, you could say, or the fact that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, is the gospel. It's not just ticking a box. Oh yes, I've come to church today. Oh yes, I've... No. It's that unchanging message, that wonderful message that Jesus Christ came into the world to die, not for good people, for sinners. That's the solution. Having shown all the brevity of life, there's a solution that God has provided and all we've done, if we've contributed anything to this, was the sin that made the death of Christ's only son our Christ, the Son of God, necessary in our place. That's all we've provided. All we've provided in the mix is sin. God has provided everything needed to rescue our souls. In verse 13 it says this, Return, O Lord, how long? See, Moses is saying, he sees all the problems. He sees where they're at. He sees the brevity of life. Why are we suffering? God's wrath. What do we need? God. Do you see what I'm saying here? I'm not just saying just trust in Jesus, come forward, and you'll be all right. No, you need God. (laughs) And you don't just need God today. You need Him tomorrow, you need Him the day after, and you will need Him in a thousand years' time, in ten thousand years' time. Because that solution will never, ever change. See, the, the biggest difficulty we have in the West is this. That we turn God, and I say this reverently, into a happy pill. Your life's not good, is it? You need Jesus. Never, never turn him into that. He's glorious. He's wonderful. He brings joy that passes all understanding. But don't make him your one hope of happiness in this world. Yes, is there happiness in the gospel? Absolutely. Is there happiness in following Christ? Absolutely. But it will be calling you also to suffer. It will call, call you to suffer in this world. Jesus suffered in this world. The most, rel- the most holy man to ever walk upon the face of the earth. The most loving man to ever walk upon the face of the earth. Came into one of the most religious generations that has ever probably been on the face of the earth. And they crucified him. That's man's heart. We will not have this man to reign over us. 
We need God. We need his compassion. We need to see that if there are troubles in this world. It's because of sin. And God is good. And everything he does is wonderful. Now it says here. Let it repent thee concerning thy servants. Another way of saying that same phrase there. Let it repent thee concerning thy servants. Verse 13 says this. Have pity on your servants. Or have compassion on your servants. Now there's the idea here. The language seems to suggest. Is God repenting or having a change of mind? And you're probably going to go. Well up until this point you're saying God doesn't change. Why does the Bible speak in such language at times of God repenting towards his servants? Now. God does not change. He doesn't. It says in Numbers 23 verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie. Neither the son of man that he should repent. Neither he said and shall he not do it. Or hath he spoken and shall not make it good. In Malachi 3 6 it says this. For I am the Lord. I change not. That's why you can have confidence in him. I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Why are you not consumed today? Why, are, why should not we go to bed worried about will we go to heaven or go to hell if we're trusting in Jesus Christ? Because he doesn't change. His promises doesn't change. He cannot deny himself. Now, the language here is of repenting. You see, one of the, the challenges we face is this. We are creatures. We are time Bound, small, tiny creatures. And we can't comprehend the working of God. We cannot understand the work of our God. Who himself does not change. He comes down to us. Almost like, imagine if you will, an adult coming to speak to a child. You speak the truth, but you, you speak it in a language that's a lot more simplified down. And God comes down to us and speaks to us in creaturely language. God doesn't change. We must realize that. Now what does change is if God shows us pity and compassion, our relationship with God changes. But our God does not change. Our God does not change. Verse 14. Oh, satisfy us early with thy mercy that we may rejoice and be glad in our days. You see what it says? If you satisfy us, if you bring us joy, if, you, if we rejoice in Him, if, if we are satisfied in the God of heaven and earth, we'll be glad in our days. There'll be blessings. Make glad according to the days therein thou hast afflicted us, and the years wherein we have seen evil. If you see God as beautiful, that is the solution. If you see God as wonderful, guess what will happen? You're going to see sin as horrible. And when you see sin as horrible. Have you ever got to open the fridge one day. There's a bad smell. What do you do? You can't wait to get it out of the fridge. And throw it in the bin. And get it down to the wheelie bin as quickly as possible. You can't wait for that smell to be removed from the kitchen. Maybe the milk has gone off or something like that. Sin is like that to us. If we see what goodness looks like. In our confession of faith it says this. Speaking about our God. There is only one living and true God. Who is infinite in being and perfection. 
And one of the things it says in our confession of faith says, He is most loving. One of the great things about this unchanging God and our unchanging, this, His unchanging solution is this. His love cannot be any more loving than it is. And it cannot be any more good than it is. It's His beauty that we need. It's His glory that we need. His perfection of glory. All of these things meet our needs. And then the final verse. As Moses writing under the inspiration of Almighty God. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. And establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands establish thou it. Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. That's the solution. The beauty of God. You see, you're going to love worship if God is beautiful in your eyes. You're going to love worship if sin is horrendous. And that will bring about repentance. Repentance can't be, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to do that anymore. No. It has to be, I love God so much more. I hate sin so much more. I cling to Him so much more. Amen.